Hello everyone, I hope you're doing well. Welcome to the new year, 2024, and this is the first episode of the, in the new year of the Hearth of Hellenism podcast. I'm excited to have on the amazing Byzantine historian, Anthony Caldelis. He is prolific and just amazing in terms of the, the wealth of knowledge that he has on tap, it seems like. You can just talk to him and it's just thing like the stuff just comes out and it's mesmerizing and it is just so he's just so full of knowledge and history and and, and insights it's just great to to talk to him this was a great podcast that i did with him anthony is the author of many books and when i say many i really do mean many his most recent book is the new roman empire a history of byzantium the New Roman Empire is the first full single author history of the Eastern Roman Empire to appear in over a generation. So if you are somebody who is interested in the topic of Byzantine history, uh, go pick up a copy of this book. I really do recommend that. Along with being a prolific writer, Anthony is also the host of the fantastic podcast Byzantium and Friends. I highly recommend you also subscribe and listen to his podcast if you're looking to explore the topic of Byzantium. My conversation with Anthony today is based on a chapter that he wrote and contributed towards a recent book that came out uh, called Is Byzantine Studies a Colonialist Discipline? Our conversation really focuses on the relationship between West and East, being Western Europe and the, the Eastern Roman Empire that they later labeled as Byzantines, and then um, that conflict, that relationship. Uh, we focus on anti-Greek sentiment in Western Europe, where it comes from, um, the history of that, and particular manifestations of the anti-Greek sentiment. One particular um, example that we spend a good amount of time on when it comes to anti-Greek sentiment has to do with the Greek language and the uh, attempt to reconstruct ancient Greek pronunciation. You know, as Anthony will tell you in the episode, it wasn't a purely neutral, you know, objective affair to just, you know, find out what did, you know, classical Greek sound like. It was not um, neutral. There was baggage attached to that. And we're going to unpack that baggage in this episode. So without further delay, here is my conversation with Anthony. All right, Anthony, thank you so much for being on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm just fine, Angelo. Thank you for having me. This episode, we're going to be delving into some interesting Byzantine history and also, I guess, as it overlaps with Byzantine studies. Uh, I believe this uh, this conversation really started uh, after I read your chapter in a book that recently came out called Is Byzantine Studies a Colonialist Discipline Toward a Critical Historiography? And you contributed a fantastic um, chapter in that book. And it talks about uh, the title was The Price of Admission. So I don't know if we should maybe save that later or talk about that now. How would what would you like to do? You want to jive? Uh... Well, I would like to ask you first what you made of the volume as a whole, and in particular, like, so talking about um, colonialism and you know, post-colonial critiques and so forth is a rather uh, esoteric 
sort of academic way of talking. And so I was just kind of wondering what you made of it. Well, I I really liked the your chapter in particular and the work itself because you know it's a question that needs to be asked is this discipline is it being colonialistic how is it approaching its subject what are what are the assumptions what are the biases you know how do, how is byzantium and the byzantine history how is it viewed from a western eastern uh, western european perspective Right. So that's one perspective. Um, and it, for many people, that's a very important one, even dominant in the way they sort of look at the subject matter. And I will say that it does inform a great deal of my research, too, that is seeing how Byzantine studies has evolved within Western European thought as an academic discipline. It's a Western academic discipline for the most part. In order to mesh with, promote, or serve sort of Western ideologies, but there's a flip side to it, which is where you see Byzantine studies as, as it were, the colonizer rather than the colonized, right? So within Byzantine studies, there is a kind of hegemony of, say, Greek, uh, like when it comes to language and literature. And so we talk about Byzantine literature, that's usually means Greek, even though a number of other languages were spoken and some of them written within the territories of the East Roman state. Um, there are times for historical reasons, um, you know, for example, modern Greece being the only country among those that currently sit on the territory of the Byzantine Empire that is in NATO and for a long time, the European Union, and so had more ties to the West and was a more prosperous country and so forth was able to kind of assert its own uh, hegemony in some ways, right, uh, uh, within Byzantine studies. Uh, you know, obviously it being also an Orthodox Greek-speaking country, it had a more, uh, you know, historic, closer historic ties uh, to, to that society. But having said that, so there are ways in which you can see Byzantium or Byzantine studies as being both colonized, say, by the West or or a colonizer. And and there are lots of other relationships that are explored in that volume. I yeah. I, I just wanted to get that out before we yeah. yeah, talk about any particular one. Yeah, I encourage uh, everyone to pick up a copy of that book and read it. It's very um, interesting. Yeah, so it's up to you whether you want to talk about um, my contribution to that now or you yeah, want to I frame think, it with I a general think, discussion I first. I think let's let's put that in the back burner and kind of start from the beginning for the audience. Now, what is Byzantium? When we say Byzantium, you know, what is the time period we're looking at? Sort of let's um, categorize and uh, put everything into perspective. Yeah, it's very easy to point to, quote, Byzantium on, on a map. Um, basically, the term is a 19th century um, kind of invented term to refer to the Eastern Roman state whether you want to call it the Eastern Roman Empire or polity, um, basically the Eastern half of the ancient Roman Empire that did not fall as the Western half did. The Western half fell in the fifth century AD, the Eastern did not. Um, and it uh, soldiered on for another millennium. So down to 1453. So this is um, the continual history of the Eastern Roman Empire 
from conventionally the foundation of Constantinople in 330 to the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks in 1453. Though the beginning point is rather uh, conventional, it's just sort of arbitrary. You can pick other starting points because there's no break between the Roman Empire and, quote, Byzantium. Yeah, they're artificially there. created boundaries. Yeah. So, I mean, the end is pretty definite. Yeah. Well, yeah, a, the end, yeah. But like, yeah, the, yeah. you know, when does when does it become, you know, historically speaking or in historiography, how people like to chunk up and divide time? You yeah. know, this is the Roman Empire or and now this is, you know, Byzantine Empire. It's like, well, these labels, yeah. they serve uh, they serve a purpose. They serve a, you know, uh, a part of that colonial uh, conversation. Uh, it ties in, you know. Yes, those are modern labels. Yeah. Modern labels, yeah. Yeah. And so we are talking about a society that in its early phase that compassed um, the Balkans, Asia Minor, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt. It lost Syria, Palestine, and Egypt to the Arabs in the uh, 7th century, along with a good chunk of the Balkans. Uh, gradually regained bits of what it had lost, so... It reached another peak in the 11th century when it included all of the Balkans and and all of Asia Minor and northern Syria and well into the Caucasus, then lost a chunk. Anyway, it keeps losing and regaining until finally it shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until at the end it's just basically the city of Constantinople and a few islands and the Peloponnese at the, the very end. It is predominantly a Greek-speaking society, especially after the 7th century, and also Chalcedonian Orthodox, uh, again, after the 7th century. Uh, the early period is much more mixed in terms of languages and religions. Uh, so, yeah, that's basically what we're talking about. Particularly in the conversation we're going to have today is um, the Western uh, anti-Greek sentiment and how this ties into the idea of Europe and your, your chapter in the book. So I guess we want to start with uh, how do we define what is anti-Greek you know, Greek rhetoric and where does this originate from? It originates in ancient Roman perceptions, largely. Mm. So as your readers or audience may know, so readers is a, <laughs> is a habit of someone who, who writes a lot. Um, anyway, as your audience will know, ancient Greece was conquered by the Romans. It took a long time. Um, and Romans had this very complex and mixed uh, relationship to the Greeks and Greek culture. And so we have to keep these both in mind for even for the story that we're talking about today. So there's a great deal of admiration for Greek culture in many ways, sophisticated its literature, its glorious sort of classical past. Romans never denied those things. Neither did medieval Western Europeans, neither do modern European. The problem comes when we're talking about contemporary Greeks, whether the ones conquered by the Romans in real time, right? Or the ones with which the Western Europeans thought they were dealing. So again, in real time, there's always this sense that, yeah, Greeks are you know, kind of sophisticated and clever, maybe a bit too clever. Um, they'd rather talk and negotiate and quibble rather than fight like real men. Right. And this explains why the Romans beat them. So in the Roman perception of things, you know, Romans are the sort of manly people. They have the more virtuous culture. They're fit to rule. Yeah. Um, and Greeks are good to have like, you know, you got your 
household philosopher or you know you know yeah they're like the geeks like oh they're there to do the the science stuff we're here to like you know be military and conquer and rule and you know give order and laws and so forth and the, you know the greeks famously had a history that they were utterly unable to unite um or to produce stable long-lasting polities certainly nothing like the roman respublicum and so it was this kind of mixed picture that combined admiration, but also um, condescension. And so you find in ancient Latin literature, these images of the Greeks that are like shifty and untrustworthy and kind of weak and kind of effeminate. Uh, so, so, you know, Greek sexuality was a bit of a problem. Um, that, you know, when you keep losing wars, your manliness is a problem. Anyway, so medieval Western Europeans uh, whose learned language was Latin um, had access to these stereotypes and through various texts. Uh, they are in some of the more prominent ancient Roman authors. And so gradually they began to emphasize these, um, especially when they wanted to disparage the quote Greeks. Um, and 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 so they, they kind of tended to rehash those same images. It's basically the same core. However, it becomes much more prominent uh, in in medieval times than it had been, say, in antiquity. In antiquity, eventually Greeks and Romans, you know, it, it formed a kind of partnership uh, both in culture and politics, uh, you start to have uh, Greek uh, senators, uh, that is, Roman senators of Greek origin, mm -hmm. right? Um, the Roman aristocracy knew Greek. A lot, many of them were bilingual. And so, you know, respected Greek culture just from the get-go. This is not really the case in Western uh, medieval Europe, where there's much, much less knowledge of Greek, uh, there's no real uh, collaboration between the cultures, not much cooperation. They're at a much greater distance uh, because the centers of European power were mainly in like the north. We're talking about Germany and, and Paris. And... For the audience, uh, this we're, we're thinking of now the, the after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. And now yeah. we have this divide between, you know, the... the broken up kingdoms in the West, the papal states, things like this, all these, you know, um, other, there's no centralized power anymore. The, the, the Roman Empire isn't there anymore, and it's preserved in the East, it continues in the East, and so this is what we're talking about now. Yeah. Uh, and so those stereotypes get brought back. There's one thing that I have to mention, which is fundamental, uh, which is that the Greeks in question did not have a Greek identity. They had a Roman identity. This is very important to, to remind people. Uh, so the people we call Byzantines were Romans. And yeah. because they were Romans, they regarded themselves as Romans. This wasn't just some mistake that they made. This wasn't some label that they used. Uh, it, this was who they thought they were. And that for us means that is who they are. Yeah. However, because the Roman name was um, infused with such political importance, even in the Western tradition, uh, Western European tradition, and there are a number of institutions in medieval Europe that 
wanted to claim the mantle of Rome and to be the new Rome. Um, in many ways, the papacy, which was you know, head, headquartered in um, the city of Rome, but also the German emperors in the north claimed to be emperors of the Romans and so forth. They wanted to appropriate the Roman mantle. And so to make a long story short, they began this tradition of denying that the Easterners were Romans at all and calling them Greeks. So mm -hmm. their state was the empire of the Greeks. Um, the people were Greeks and so forth. And it's in order to make them, in European eyes, unworthy of the mantle of Rome, all those negative stereotypes about the Greeks were brought to the fore. Mm -hmm. right? And so the idea is something like, yeah, I mean, you're you're Greeks because you speak Greek and you're you're not really Romans because of all of these uh, you know, terrible things that we know about you. Anyway, um, so the prejudice was in some respects instrumental. In other respects, you know, it's kind of what happens when two people with a different culture um, are at odds over something that they both want. And all of this was compounded by religious prejudice. So specifically the tensions between the churches of Rome and Constantinople, which is another very long story, but at times it became very <clears throat> acrimonious and these fueled these negative perceptions. So in addition to all of the ancient stereotypes that get brought back, the Greeks now are also problematic because they don't uh, obey the Pope. Mm -hmm. right. So they're schismatics or heretics, depending on you know uh, who you read. And this is linked to the trait of their being sort of deceptive and treacherous and faithless, is that they have, quote, broken from the Church of Rome. Uh, the Church of Constantinople was never subordinate to the Church of Rome, but at some point during the Middle Ages, the Church of Rome persuaded itself that it was the um, sole and uncontested ruler of the entire church, um, and that any church that didn't obey it was um, in schism and needed to be, quote, returned to obedience. This was the technical term was reduction of the Greeks. The Greeks had to be reduced, which meant subordinated. Um, and so all of this fueled anti-Greek um, prejudice. You know, you know, look, we also have to keep in mind that Western medieval Europe is a mess. You know, it consists of, I don't know how many kingdoms, uh, yeah. one or more empires at any time, the papacy, all the, you know, Italian republics and states and commercial republics, whatever. It's it's just a complete mess. And all of these people are fighting against each other, and they don't all have the same views about um, anything. Um, and so at times you find some of them, you know, allying with Constantinople against their fellow you know rivals in the West and so forth. Um, so it, it's a pretty complicated story. What I presented earlier was just kind of the, what I think is the takeaway, the the, the, the dominant picture the one that later led to the creation of um, traditions of historiography, of writing about the East, including, you know, when it became, quote, Byzantium. Uh, but there are always um, sort of secondary strains and, you know, more positive views and so forth. Those always existed. 
Because after all, during all of this time, Western medieval Europeans are admiring the culture of Constantinople. They're very envious of it. They're envious of its wealth, of its antiquity, of its sophistication, of its access to original Greek materials that they did not have, including the Gospels and I mean the, the New Testament and the Church Fathers and so forth. Um, and um, so they appropriated a lot of this uh, during the Middle Ages. So there is this kind of give and take. But when they appropriated things, they didn't acknowledge it. So this is, there's a little bit of a bad conscience there, I, I find, overall. But these are very um, big generalizations. I just wanted to kind of set the tone. That. What's that? Explain a little bit more of that, expand on that. Uh, which part? The, uh, the, the bad intention, or there, wasn't, there was no acknowledgement? Well, so, for example, when you say, um, you're not a Roman emperor, I'm the Roman emperor, and in order to show that, I'm dressing like you. Okay. It's weird, right? Yeah. Um, or I'm using your Greek title mm -hmm. sometimes, right? It It's just, I don't know. It's an awkward, awkward situation. It's like, well, uh, I've been here for quite a t quite some time, and you've shown up now, tr you know, looking like me, dressing like me, trying to, like, you know, it's, it's like, you know, like there's an imposter here. And it's like, what are we? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. So there is, yeah, debate today going on about appropriation, right? Like cultural appropriation. What you know, and it's very difficult to define, and it's very difficult to know if if you're doing it at any time because human beings are always like you know borrowing stuff from each other and trying things out, and you know, often you don't even know that you're doing it. Um, you know, idea, practice, a thing, you know, enters your own, you know. Yeah. Um, life story and after a while it's kind of your own now when you're doing that however so in a very specific way when you're and this is the relationship that i'm describing when you're taking something from another culture and simultaneously disparaging that culture and not saying by the way i'm taking that from yes i find it very useful um so that is for me very problematic and i think it's uh, appropriate to call it appropriation, uh, no pun intended, um, in a negative sense. And so Western European regimes are always taking things from Constantinople or imitating it, its court style and its, its coins and like everything that made it prestigious in their eyes. Um, they're trying to imitate it because remember, they don't necessarily have a kind of direct access to antiquity. You know, they're not like reaching back through like antiquarian research mm -hmm. to find out how things were done in the ancient Roman Empire and to do it that way. It, it, most of the time when they're saying, well, you know, we need to sort of accessorize a little bit more like Romans. How do we do that? Well, um, we'll just look at the people who are, you know, <laughs> who are descendants of that tradition today, and that's Constantinople. I'll give you another example. With literature, specifically Greek Christian literature. So when Western Europeans, and there's a famous one in the ninth century named Anastasius the Librarian, who's a native of Rome, and he learned Greek somehow. Uh, we don't know exactly how. Um, he starts translating Greek Christian texts into Latin, on the theory that because the Greeks are religiously deviant, these texts don't 
really belong to them anymore. Mm. They belong to us, the sort of Latin Catholics. They're our texts. And so we have to take them, quote, back. Yeah. Right. So it's these processes of taking and justifying it in that way through disparaging the other um, that is this, this very common pattern in, in the long term of the relationship. I, I, uh, I see this behavior currently today in, in certain areas of life. We can probably talk about that later. That's uh, no, go on. I mean, this is the moment. Uh, well, like just what you said about, um, you know, like, oh, they're not doing it right. They're deviant. We're, we're reclaiming it or we're taking it back because we're the rightful people. Like, I've seen that within. So in pagan context of neo-pagan circles, stuff like that westerners will say i've heard them say you know the greeks got rid of their gods and you know they can't uh you know set any um uh, they they it's hard to it's hard to say like they when we some of us will put opinions forward that are you know well based on the sources based on this or you know we would appreciate if you didn't act like that towards us when we put up healthy boundaries concerning how we are engaged with people will respond negatively about, oh, well, you know, you don't you don't really deserve that. You're not really Greeks. They'll bring out the anti-Greek sentiments. You're not really Greeks. You're just, you know, uh, um, I've heard uh, I've been described as a Balkan bastard. Um, Wait, hold on. So when you're saying Greek here, you're not really Greek. Do you mean that in a religious sense or in an ethnic sense or, um, or even worse, I, a racial I, I, one? I, I really don't know how these people use it polemically, but they they will try to deny the Greekness. Um, I don't know if it's like this, you know, enlightenment era, you know, sort of like, oh, you're not really descendant of them. I think they will make it a racial thing, which I'm not interested in. I'm not interested in uh, defending that sort of position. Uh, it's just that this is what they will say to us or say to me, particularly. Right. It's it basically my, my point is that people uh, get very dismissive and try to find ways to sidestep people like me or other Greeks who are involved in these sorts of topics and have an opinion, or when we object to being abused or or appropriated from, or just when there's polemics, this is just polemic stuff, they will throw out the anti-Greek sentiments, they will throw out all sorts of um, um, mental gymnastics, like for example, um, you know, like, oh, you guys conquered the entire world and it's it's everyone's now and, you know, you can't, you, you just have to accept it. it it's, it's quite interesting. I'm like, well, you know, you, you go back to Alexander as justification for X, Y, Z things you want to do in your behaviors. But what about, you know, the history afterwards? What happened? Like, can we talk about the Crusades? Like, can we talk about uh, medieval, you know, anti-Greek sentiment and the, the construction of the idea of Europe and then how we were casted as this, you know, foreign, strange, oriental other. And it's just like, there's a lot more history that people don't examine. People just like to pick to the, pick the history they're familiar with in order to construct their narratives that suit their agenda in their, um, in what they're doing. So it's like in Western Europe, what they, what, what you just said about, um, um, oh, these Greeks are deviant. You know, they, these texts aren't theirs anymore. It's really ours. That, that mentality from back from like the mid, mid, the middle ages is still around. It's, it's really interesting. Oh, yes. uh, one quick question. So when you say people say this, are you talking about a, like scholars of the topic in question that is PhD yeah, professors no, 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 in no, universities. I, I, 
Yeah. Or are you talking about like people who engage in debates over this in the internet? Which of the two? It's not the scholars necessarily. The scholars, they do engage in a, in a very, they do it in more in, interesting way. They do it, they're more sneaky, some people, when especially when it comes to the language aspect of things, we can get to that. Mm. But even, even, you know, these things that might, at the academic level, that it might be winked at, for example, people, as it trickles down into society, it's more out in the open. And people are not so, you know, Sure. You know what so, I mean? With their, with their words, they're more just blatant with their, you know, their distaste for us and, um, you know, not wanting to listen or what, like, you, what do we know? We're just, you know, ignorant people and we don't know anything about our history. They tried to paint it that way. Sure. So in a certain sense, it's understandable why this is happening. I'm not justifying it, but I'm... I'm so Europe and later the West... Yeah. Um, invested a great deal in establishing this relationship with ancient Greece, which yeah. it right is considered sort of one of the pillars of Western civilization. And in fact, these kind of weird genealogies of Western history have been constructed that run from, you know, well, a little bit Mesopotamia, a little bit Egypt, but then really wham, Greece, then Rome, then the Middle Ages, right? It's, a, it's this genealogy that moves toward the westward as it moves forward in time so that the current people living in those places yeah. grad at some point gradually fall out of the picture as they become less useful to the western genealogical narrative right so the iraqis and egyptians fall out pretty early like right like you might say yeah. well like in some Western in surveys of Western history or civilization or whatever, as they're taught in courses and universities or in textbooks, you will find Egypt and Mesopotamia sometime. And you kind of wonder, well, at what point do those people fall out of that history? Yeah, yeah. Then you look at the Greeks and at some point they fall out of the history. You know, it's probably after Alexander, as you said, or something like that. At some point, the Romans kind of fall out of that history, like even modern Rome, like um, or, you know, medieval or. Uh, early modern Rome is certainly not part of that genealogy. Modern Italy is not like, you know, a pillar of Western civilization or something like that. And and it's anyway, it's an odd um, a a asymmetrical, just you know, combination of times and places. Now, having said that, the claim is established. And so, yes, so now Greece is part of Western history. And then you're faced with this pesky problem that there's still Greeks around. And now you don't know what to do with them. Like for the most part, you just ignore them because they're just not part of the story. And you can say, yeah, Greek history and Greek literature. And, Greek... and it's in a very rare context that one might ask, oh, did you mean ancient? Do you mean modern or Greek? Or what kind of Greek do you mean? And then they might say, oh, but I mean ancient. Mm -hmm. Right. So you have a context where someone can write a history of Greek literature, a history of classical Greek literature, or a history of ancient Greek literature. And there's all the same thing, like it refers to antiquity. Yeah. Or you can have a, a book that's like a history of Greek poetry that can go down to the present. Right? It's kind of ambiguous. So the presence of modern Greeks at any period, it could be in the Middle Ages, modern Greeks are the ones in Constantinople, it is a little problematic. Um, when you want to claim the sort of important bits of the Greek tradition for yourself. Yeah. Um, and this happens. Now, 
On the flip side, right, th there's a tension in this question, like even in Greece. So I, I, I'll tell you what I mean. So I grew up in Greece, and in school, we kept being told that Hellenism, which means mostly classical, but also, you know, it's extension to the present, because when you're in Greece and you say Greeks, you're not just referring to the ancient Greeks. It's... Yeah. It's, you know, theoretically one story. Hellenism is a universal ideal, right? We gave, we quote, gave it to the rest of the world, right? It is a human, you know, it's a, it's a trans-historical human ideal. Everybody has access to it. It's not exclusive. It's something great that the Greeks did for everybody. Mm -hmm. Well, this establishes a claim that others can have to it, in other words, right? Like, you're giving them the right to say, okay, well, if you gave it, then I have it. Yeah. And, you know, maybe I can be grateful to you, okay? But it's still mine. I Like, I still have it, right? And here attention kicks in because at this, I'm not entirely sure that, for example, Greeks fully believe it. In other words, if you were to say to someone like in Greece, okay, we'll just take a foreigner. Let's say they they love Greek things, they learn Greek, they they come to Greece, they live as Greeks. Do they become Greek? And there's like some hedging and hawing about that. Well, yeah, I guess you know whatever. Well, that happens to be my mother, and there's never any prejudices. She's American, like it's he was always welcome and and all that. But despite all of those things, she was never considered Greek. Right? It was, oh, where are you from? Because mm -hmm. you're, you're blonde, you have a bit of an accent, right? And from, from childhood, I was aware of this tension because of that. It's like, wait, at school I was told that Hellenism is like a matter of ideals and learning the language and, you know, it's something that everybody can, whatever. But then it was always like this, the more narrow ethnic conception. Mm. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I, it's, I think it's more of a, a modern phenomenon that 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 dichotomy or that that tension, that give and take. I don't think it was that's that's more modern. I feel like you know, in more in the in the past, it's you know, you could assimilate just easily. Oh, another another Greek because you speak the language and you dress like that, and it's like okay, they're Greek, you know, or whatever. It's not like uh, now. There's more. There's more baggage, I guess, today for people to be like, mm -hmm, you know. Well, of course, because this is the problem of a modern nation state yeah. that wants to have a its own particular discrete identity on the one hand, but on the other hand, premises its like presence on the world stage, in fact, literally its existence in the war of independence, on the fact that it represents this, you know, universal ideal of Hellenism. So it's its particular kind of tension in, in that exists in this case, right? But I can give you a medieval parallel, right? So for example, the East Romans, quote, Byzantines, they had a similar kind of universal ideal that in theory, all people could accept and embrace. And this was Orthodox Christianity, right? And so baked into the basic assumptions about being Christian and Orthodox is that like, as scripture itself says, it doesn't matter if you're 
uh, you know, a Greek or a Jew or a Scythian or a man or a woman. You, you know, you accept Jesus Christ or uh, depend, uh, yeah, according to what the church says, and you are equal like in Christ. Uh, but this didn't actually play out that way. So when, you know, Bulgarians and Serbs and Rus and, uh, and Georgians accepted Orthodox Christianity in precisely the manner approved by the Church of Constantinople, and they were like grudgingly accepted as, okay, yeah, Christians, but I mean, you're still barbarians and you're not really the same. And there's still all of these ethnic stereotypes and, you know, so... There really is no mm, actionable sense of Christian brotherhood in that sense that I see. So it's a similar kind of tension between our particular identity based on like language and, you know, our communities and so forth and these universal ideals. Interesting parallel. Very good. Anyway. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about how uh, Greek culture was appropriated and uh into the idea of Europe and the construction of a European idea. Yeah, so this is part of a current research project, um, which is looking at the very, very big picture of how the idea of Europe slash the West comes about. And uh, I should just um, tell your audience very um, briefly that the idea of Europe as a kind of Euro unified thing that is a kind of identity that is where you can say we Europeans or I'm from Europe, you know, these kinds of things. It really comes into play in the 15th century, uh, later 15th century, like after the fall of Constantinople and becomes uh, very important in the 16th down to the 19th century. Now in the later, in the 19th century, it gradually becomes replaced with the idea of the West. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of what we have today. Uh, so where today you would say, you know, like a history of Western Civ or something like that, before the 19th century, it would probably be European uh, would be the key term for that. And in part to include, you know, North America, but that's not the only reason why. Um, and I should say that what I have discovered, interestingly, is that before the 15th century, the equivalent term is again, the West. In other words, during the Middle Ages, Western Europeans thought of themselves as the West. And this was um, a fairly a fairly robust identity. I have found people referring to, you know, we Westerners or writing a history of the West. It's obviously not quite as strong as it is in early modernity or modernity. Uh, with the European slash Western labels, but it's there and it's real. And it's not just some vague geographical label as, as some scholars seem to think it is. And in fact, its origins are, um, they go back to the division of the Roman Empire in the four, late fourth century, and in particular, the division of the churches. So Western writers were just, over aware of the fact that they represented the Western Latin half of a former empire and of a unified church, and that there was an Eastern part too, an Eastern empire, which was still around, and an Eastern church, which was the Greek church. So the West uh, was always under 
the reason why the West calls itself the West is because it's in contradistinction to the East, which is the Eastern Roman Empire and the Greek Church. Like that's why it exists. And I say this is interesting because, um, you know, most civilizations don't decenter themselves in their names that they give to themselves. Like they're usually in the center of yeah. things. Yeah. So it's odd that the West calls itself the West. Yeah. Um, even and and West and East have no center. There, yeah. It's just East and West form yeah. like a complementary duo. Okay. Um, so in this process of forming a kind of coherent Western European identity, whether it's Western or European or both, we'll just for the purposes of this discussion, we'll treat those as kind of equivalent. Greek things occasionally played a very important role, uh, Greek as understood in the West. So one I mentioned already, uh, which was the translation and appropriation of Christian, of very important Christian texts. Right? After all, Christian doctrine formed in the East, the main church councils were all in the East, the main theologians were in the East, all the major church fathers were Greek speakers. And it was, uh, it gnawed at the Western <laughs> church, right, that it had to claim as the source of its orthodoxy, Eastern Greek texts, while at the same time condemning contemporary Greeks, that is the religious heirs of the ancient patristic tradition as heretical and deviant and so forth. Mm -hmm. So this was a bit of a problem. It was one of these cases where they were they explicitly understood this and they developed this whole theory that proper religion had emigrated from the East and the quote Greeks to the West at some point, because not only were the Westerners more manly warriors on the battlefield and so forth, but they were also more properly religious and mm -hmm. better Christians than those Easterners who were all these, you know, shifty deviants. And, and so with a quote, good conscience, we can just appropriate all of their stuff. So all the church fathers are actually Catholic, not Orthodox. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's one instance uh, where the West sort of forms its identity. And there's some texts that, that talk about this explicitly, the, the, the movement or transfer of religious culture from East to West. Okay. And later they did the same thing with the classical stuff. So in the Middle Ages, they're not interested in classical stuff at all. Uh, but, but starting in the 14th century, especially the Italian humanists, they become very interested in the classical stuff. Um, and so they start commissioning manuscripts and buying manuscripts from the East. And then you have all of these Greek uh, scholars who are leaving from Constantinople because of the Turkish conquests. And they go to Italy and they're hired as Greek tutors. Mm -hmm. And so you have another movement of transfer, right? This is the transfer of studiorum, of studies, mm -hmm. right? So not only so that the the pedagogy in Greek and all the grammar and the dictionaries and the texts and the commentaries and all of the techniques of reading and interpreting classical Greek texts slowly pick up in uh, Italy and from there eventually in the rest of Western Europe. And originally this was done at the hands of Greek teachers because uh, uh, like honestly, like the, the humanists did not know Latin um, Greek well enough to do this until Ah, the end of the 15th century. Mm -hmm. But uh, this is lucky for them because by the end of the 15th century, the supply of Eastern teachers had kind of dried up. Mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of the institutional um, 
the institutions of higher learning in the East were basically, well, driven into the ground because of the Ottoman conquest and there simply wasn't enough wealth or interest or whatever. I mean, the whole political system had disappeared, been replaced by um, the um, uh, the Ottoman uh, Sultanate. Anyway, so by that point, um, Western scholars begin to be the the new Hellenists, the teachers of, of Greek um, and to study the classical tradition. Um, and the modern tradition of classical studies, whether philological or what we have in the U.S. classics, is a descendant of the Greek studies that were established at that time in Western Europe, mm -hmm. which is itself a descendant of the study of classical texts in Constantinople for the you know, thousand years or so before that. So there is a kind of genealogy to all this. It is continuous. There's, there's no break in the history of Greek studies, I mean, except in the West. So if you're one of these people who think that history goes from ancient Rome to the Middle Ages to modern Europe, you're essentially missing, you're missing out a, a thousand years of the transmission of these things. Yeah. Uh, because there is no ancient Greek text, none, that survived in Greek form in Western Europe. Like, zero. So all the Greek texts that we have today from antiquity pass through Constantinople, with the exception of very, very few that we have from Papyri in Egypt. Um, that it's a very, very small group. So the to the extent that classical Greek thought and literature, you know, from Homer to Plato and all of that, are foundational, uh, uh, you know, attributes and the patrimony of Western civilization, which they are, and I can give you some very striking examples of this, but like, you know, whenever you get into a discussion with someone about like, what is the West or what is Europe, sooner or later, they're going to bring this up yeah. um, along with like Roman law and Christianity or whatever. Uh, but the Greek stuff is like a top three. Um, this all they got from uh the byzantines at some point you, you mentioned that the the greek teachers they it dried up what was the the greek centers of learning or something so you mentioned something about something dried up at some point in in the west the, the... well yeah so uh, down to like 1460 1470 there were still enough very well educated uh, you know, East Romans in the East who could be hired, mm -hmm. you know, by the Venetians, by the Florentines, by whatever, to go and teach Greek to the Italians. After a certain point, there just wasn't enough of a supply, first of all, because a lot of the teachers had left. And so they weren't producing students and, you know, successors in the East. And also because the, the schools that had produced them just weren't like operating anymore. Um, so, I mean, the fall of Constantinople, you know, uh, played a, had a devastating effect uh, on, on Greek learning in the East. I mean, not, not absolute, but they certainly weren't producing the, the, the quality and number of scholars that you see in the first half of the 15th century. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in part because the emperors at the time, like Manuel II, he realized what a tremendous like diplomatic asset it was to have these very educated people 
and in fact he used a lot of them as as ambassadors uh to the west um so the emperors supported this sort of thing i mean when there're no more any uh, you know emperors they they couldn't um so yeah the supply dried out and eventually the italians also learned how to do this themselves they they knew how to do it in latin it's not like they had to learn like what a what a commentary is or what a dictionary is like they 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 had the whole apparatus it's just that they only had the latin side mm -hmm. and so now they acquired the greek side and they preferred to do it themselves yeah and this is at what point does the the reconstruction of classical greek begin this idea of you know this movement to oh well how did things how were things really pronounced in the ancient in like classical and and that sort of stuff because you know the, the byzantines they weren't con really concerned with that kind of topic of like well how did it really sound no they weren't so for the whole of byzantine history and long before that greek was pronounced um the way it's pronounced today essentially mm -hmm. uh, this is more or less greek has been pronounced this way since the like the late or middle hellenistic period in other words before uh, the time of Christ, let's say, uh, its pronunciation was at that time much, much closer to modern Greek. In fact, historically speaking, you're safer starting with a modern Greek baseline and making adjustments by period and by region in the pronunciation of certain, you know, vowels um, uh, for for that time. And so, certainly by Byzantine times and the foundation of Constantinople, it, it was it, the modern Greek. Uh, pronunciation. So in the first phase of classical Greek studies in Europe, they're learning from actual Easterners and they are learning to pronounce Greek um, the way you know, I would, let's say. And they do this well into the 16th century. So in the late 15th century, there are some scholars who, and actually the first one was a Greek, um, I last got his, uh, who they were aware, like they clearly were aware that the pronunciation of Greek in the time of, say, Homer must have been different. Um, otherwise, they would never have yeah. devised all of the different ways of, of, you know, all the different letters for all the different vowels. Like, why have them all if they're all just pronounced E? Yeah. Right. Like, uh, you know, Ypsilon and Omicron Yoda and Eta are like pronounced E. Right. Um, and others, you know, began to sort of experiment um with uh different ways of, of pronouncing um or, or you know trying to get it quote right um and they ended up with a system of pronunciation that today we call Erasmian. this is a a misnomer uh, because i mean it'll do you know words being arbitrary and made up anyway but um erasmus erasmus who by the way was a <laughs> was one of the nicest people you could hope to meet in the 16th century. And he he wrote one of the treatises, there were many, he wrote one on what ancient Greek and Latin must have sounded like, uh, trying, you know, anyway, I, I've read it. Mm -hmm. it, it it's not, a, it's not a, a text that you could use today because he says, well, this vowel sound would have sounded like the Burgundian... Eh, eh, and I don't know what the Burgundian, I don't think anybody knows, like, 
it, it's not helpful in that sense. But anyway, and, and he wrote it in the form of like a comic dialogue between a bear and a wolf or something like this. Oh. Anyway, it's a bit of a joke. Um, Erasmus himself always used the modern Greek pronunciation to the end of his life, and he never thought that anything anyone should change it. He was like insistent that you should use that because it's the pronunciation of a spoken language, the only one they knew. Um, but there were others in the 16th century who who to preferred, let's say, what they thought was a more accurate ancient pronunciation. And so gradually they developed what we call the Erasmian pronunciation, though you have to keep in mind that it is now and always has been uh, diversified by country. So each country, like the Spaniards, the Italians, the, the British, the French, and the Germans have all have their different ways mm -hmm. um, of pronouncing Greek under the broad umbrella rubric of the Erasmian system. Um, and so at that point, they stopped using the modern pronunciation in, in the West. And does that serve any uh, agendas that are maybe, let's say, not in good faith? You know, this ad adoption of a different pronunciation system, you know, is there anything in there that, you know, harkens back to anti-Greek uh, anti sentiment or anything like that? Oh, the treatises um, are full of that. Um, uh, Erasmus is accepted. Like I said, he's was, was a very nice guy. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, obviously, the point here was not to just be accurate. I mean, none of them can be since they're all so different from each other. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, you're, if, you, if your goal is to work on Homer, Aeschylus, and Pindar only, then maybe there's a point to it. Yeah. Um, for like some hardcore philological whatever, or if you intend to do recitations or something like that. But if you're working on like the New Testament or imperial era prose, um, there it is a distortion. Mm. Um, it's simply we're not spoken that way. Um, and by the way, it's interesting that... Um, like seminaries um, in the U.S. have realized this and are now in the process of, to many of them, rapidly changing over to the historic pronunciation, the, the, the modern pronunciation, for the, their texts, um, which are like Hellenistic or early Roman period, realizing that it's much more accurate. Um, and to a certain degree, they have a stake in like getting it right. The classicists... <laughs> traditionally have had a stake in and forming a kind of exclusive elitist sociolect, uh, yeah. right? A, a sociolect is like a, a way of speaking that's very particular to a specific class okay, or society, right? So um, it's a kind of, um, anyway. Like, um, like in England, for example, like it, like reading the classics and tr and speaking ancient Greek was a like a like a sign of being educated, right? Or like upper class. Oh, absolutely, a, yes. As a in the yes, in the case of Greek pronunciation, it was also a way of designating the classical texts as something that belongs properly to Western Europeans who can pronounce them correctly, and not to those people. 
Like they're very emphatic about this in the treatises. So a, a number of them have a lot of uh, prejudice and um, vitriol against modern Greeks um, who are degenerate um, descendants of their ancestors to such a degree that they can no longer speak the their own language correctly. But fortunately, some Dutch philologists will get it right. Um, they even claim, I found one, one guy who claimed that... Um, that the Byzantines had deliberately changed the way they pronounced Greek in order to confuse Westerners so that they would get it wrong and just like wild stuff. <laughs> uh, so no, this was by no means a neutral um, sort of scholarly objective. Yeah, it was not purely objective. There was oh, a, no. there were uh, bad faith agendas attached to it. Uh, I, mean, I don't know if they're having good or bad faith. Uh, uh, you I know, they want, I mean, they want to cut off. They want to again, like in my experience with people, they want to sidestep this the Greeks, the people who who speak the language. They they want to find a convenient excuse to ignore those people. Like, nah, whatever, you know. You, I mean, hold on, can't you do that in good faith? Like, you can say, well, Western supremacy. I'm open about it, and I'm doing it in good faith. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, um, but by their lights, this wasn't necessarily in bad faith. It's. It's just one of these really crappy things that, um, you know, Western appropriation leads to. Um, and, you know, fine, you know, classicists want to pronounce Greek that way, it, which, by the way, makes the language impossible for them to actually speak. Yeah. Um, and, you know, fine. They want to be more accurate with the tragedies in Homer. That's that's fine. As As someone who's taught Greek, uh, more or less all periods um, in, in American departments. What I find, I mean, fascinating, but in a, a kind of depressing kind of way, is the way they can't accentuate and stress any word, uh, even if they see the accent on it. Mm. Because, and, and this, is the, this is the really crazy part of it, they are taught to accentuate Greek words using the Latin rules for accentuation. And what, what is the Latin rule? I mean, there are different rules. So, okay. you know, each language has its own rules for what you stress. Okay. Like in so French, it's the last the proper rules for the language that they're reading. That's right. In <laughs> other words, I, I know of no other case where you have a language, it, it has the accents, and you are told... Literally, you are told, disregard the accents and use the rules from a different language hmm. to pronounce the words in this language. I it is that. crazy. Look, I'll give you an example. I'll give, pick a name. Aristonicus. Aristonicus. Where does that come from? Like, that's not Greek. Yeah. Any Greek will tell you the name is... Aristonicos. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's a good example. I just, I, this, I find this so fascinating, like just this, this behavior or mentality when it comes to the language, you know, um, I think it's, it's, it is being corrected, like you said, with the seminaries. And I also, I've seen, uh, I think the, the younger students coming up there in, they're more interested in the received pronunciation as we do it. So it's interesting to see like what trends will be in the future. 
Oh, I don't know that they're, I, I mean, classics, I, I don't think this is going to change anytime soon. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's far too entrenched. Um, and there's not really much of an incentive to, to change it. They'll say, after all, we are studying the ancient language and the base of classics really is the kind of archaic and classical period, not the later stuff. Uh, so I don't see why they, I mean, should change to the historic pronunciation, um, you know, when they're actually working on earlier text. By the way, historic pronunciation just, just means that the, the, the one that was being historically used in the early phases of, uh, uh, of classical learning, it wasn't, it doesn't, you know, anyway, or the modern Greek pronunciation, or there are other words for it, Reuchlian too, if you want yeah. to take out a German name yeah. <laughs> for some reason. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those blind spots. Um, yeah, modern Greeks, the existence of modern Greeks in, in every phase of history is a bit of a problem for those who really love the classical um, culture. Um, and I... Um, <laughs> I'll end it on just a small anecdote where I um, came across a reference as a classicist had written about some um, author that, well, this is the last Athenian historian, which I, I know what he means, right? But yeah. it's like really weird because I'm an Athenian and I'm a historian. Yeah. And it's just sort of weird to... <laughs> Anyway, yeah, I I, uh, I I totally understand. It, it it's it's <laughs> I it's like does any other do does any other culture deal with that with that sort of like how people handle these terms? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it's it, very interesting. Yeah, up along different lines, the, the parameters must always be different. I'm sure, but yeah, that that does happen every time you have a. Um, a prestige past that others want a part of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we're coming uh, down to the clock over here. We're, uh, you know, uh, finishing things up. So just uh, thank you again for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this topic. I know there could be so much more to be said, but uh, this is, I think, a really good, uh, good place for people to kind of uh, orient themselves in, in the topic. Thank you, Angela. It was a pleasure to be here. And uh, I this is ongoing research for me. So it's always good to uh, you know, articulate it uh, kind of, yeah. you know, every time I do so, I, I start making connections that I maybe hadn't seen earlier. So I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Awesome. And now uh, when is your uh, this this book you're working on? When is it coming out? Do you have a do you have an idea? Is it still being written? Is it like what, what stage are you at? The first draft is done, but I'm going to let it sit for a little while because I just published a big history called uh, the uh, New Roman Empire, a history of Byzantium with Oxford. And I want to give that some time to breathe. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to crowd it out with just throwing more after it. So I'm looking forward to it. As, as am I. Thank you.